Canis lupus familiaris, or dog. One of the most ubiquitous and popular domestic pets in history. There's archaeological evidence dating back 30,000 years, showing dogs as the first animals to be domesticated. All this time spent together, we must know each other pretty well, right? Well, it seems like we're just getting started, as oftentimes, we can be reading their behavior all wrong. Today, I sat down with Dr. Dennis Wormald, who has a PhD in canine anxiety, to learn a little bit more about what's going on inside their heads. Hello, Dr. Dennis. Hello. Welcome to Learning Things first and foremost. Second of all, do you have a dog? Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, very happy to be here, by the way. It's a um, <laughs> cool show you got going. And um, oh. yeah, in terms of having a dog, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, what, what is their name? Uh, her name is Freya. Freya. And she was actually a customs dog that I got as I was doing too much stuff in my life. And right. I thought, I can't commit time to a dog right now. This is a dog that I can foster for a year. Yeah. And then when she passes all of her exams, she'll end up being a sniffer dog. Right. And it's going to be really sad, but I just feel like I can't have a dog at the moment. That was my headspace. Yeah. So why do you own Freya now? <laughs> she failed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I couldn't say no. I mean, they said, do you want to keep her? And I looked at her and I thought, well, what would she want? She wants to be with me. So I'm keeping her. It's it's her choice. So yeah. kept her. Amazing. Yeah. And what breed yeah. is Freya? She's a Labrador. Oh. Yeah. I, I seriously, I'm almost speechless because I've got your book here. You wrote a book. It's called A Dedication to Difficult Dogs. Yes. And immediately the title <laughs> resonated with me. Really? As I'm sure a lot of other people, yep. you know, sometimes in that first year of a puppy's life, even if you've had dogs before, at times you're just sitting there thinking, what the fuck have I done? Like how, what am I doing wrong with this dog? Like, and I I had that with my dog Rat. She's uh, she's almost three and mm. she's a dorky. So she's a Dachshund or Dachshund, depending yep. on how wanky yep. I want to feel, yep. cross Yorkshire Terrier. Right. And she was a COVID dog. Yeah. And I, I just remember having moments where I was like, what am I doing wrong or is she anxious? Like I wasn't sure if there was a finger to point and at which one of us. So immediately your title was like, oh, okay, cool. This is for me. Yep. And then as I kept reading it, it was just honestly like therapy for like my dog. Truly the way you have explained these situations and, and with the kind of fiction that you tie it in with, mm. you follow a fictitious story of two mm. dogs with separate owners and separate choices, separate yeah. circumstances, separate uh, approaches to training a dog and owning a dog. All of these chapters, everything that happens in them, whether it's, you know, a dog chewing up some, uh, the baby's jacket or, mm. you know, random things or my dog won't recall at the park kind of thing. Yeah. Everyone can relate to a certain extent to everything in the book. And then at the end of every chapter, you come in in uh, nonfiction and explain and give insight about these behaviours and I'm not kidding when I say I will be bullying every single <laughs> one of you if you don't buy this book. No, really. If you have a dog, if you love dogs, or if you are looking to get a dog, I can't recommend it more because it, seriously, like I feel closer to my dog Good. in a way that I didn't expect to. Um, I read one of the reviews for it where it said I didn't want it to end and I kind of agreed. I was like, no, there's more. I want more. <laughs> well, that's very flattering. Thank you so much for all of that feedback. Yeah, one one thing with this book that might set it apart from other people, from other books, sorry, is that I really have written it in a style that it, it's not out there. There's nothing else out there that's got this element of, of fiction with and story, allegory it's called, to draw yeah. you in to learning through the story. It's actually more of a, a child novel technique for kids right. to learn through story. But I found that if you're trying to transport your mind and understand the world of another animal that's got a different brain that thinks in a different way, drawing on that technique that's been used in child fiction and, and learning before yeah. is actually extremely effective for learning when you're talking about a different species. Oh, exactly. I mean, t tell me like I'm five kind of thing. Yeah. I I am five sometimes. So it really, <laughs> I mean, it really helps. You, you did just mention that you kind of hadn't seen anything like it. And that was one of my questions because it sounded like it mm. came from a really compassionate place from you. Like it does seem to be written in a way that 
suggests that, yeah, you weren't seeing anything like it in the market or at least the narrative wasn't how you wanted it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think compassion is a good word. And I do think though that some people see too much compassion as a certain kind of person that's all wishy-washy and super empathetic and lovey-dovey and actually isn't tuned in with where reality is. Right. Whereas I actually came about it the other way around. So I wasn't super compassionate or vegetarian or anything about animal rights and all that stuff growing up. It actually came through science and neuroscience and learning the the animal welfare science that I then realised, hey, these animals really do have feelings just like us. But from a scientific point of view, right. I got there rather than the empathetic side. But yeah. I can end it up in the same place. Well, no, that's a good point yeah. though because I feel like if you are going to come from the ethics side, you're teetering too close to that anthropomorphic mm. um, kind of relationship with the dog. Yep. There, there are good and bad sides to anthrop- anthropomorphism and I think, yeah, it does go over these in the book. You know, I like to go back to biology and neuroscience when I understand animals and there are ways in which our brains are exactly the same as the brain of a dog mm. and in which our brains really haven't evolved or changed much, especially the emotional centres. And so that then means that if you're going to anthropomorphise, which, you know, those of you that don't actually know what that means, it's when you're ascribing human-like attributes to an animal, essentially. We do it to bears all the time. Like they're the scariest, they should be the scariest animal in the world and yet we have like little teddy bears and like the attitude that a lot of kids have to bears can so be true. dangerous. It's so true. They want to like, go oh, up and hug a bear so when they're cute. an adult because they're cute. Well, I mean, how dare they be that fluffy just quietly. <laughs> I'd pat a bear too if I wasn't wiser. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, let, let's let's get into it. I mean, yep. the first thing that kind of came to mind was on that anthrop- anthropomorphism. God, yeah. that's a fucking hard word, isn't it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to trip over that. Yeah. <laughs> The idea of anthropomorphism and how it does play a huge role mm. in how we interact with our dogs. So something you mentioned in the book is the idea that, you know, like everyone can relate to this where if you've got a dog, obviously, and if you don't, this is a very interesting episode to listen to yeah. <laughs> or at least wanting a dog. When you punish a dog, you know, maybe they've done an accident inside or yep. they've chewed something up. And either you show it to them or you, you know, you get upset at them and they look guilty. Yes. Something you bring up in the book is so interesting. The idea of guilt would require a sense of morality of right and wrong, which you say, you know, dogs don't have, they don't have that developed. Absolutely correct. And there is a research study that came out maybe five or 10 years ago that did actually try to look for signs of guilt in dogs. Right. And they found that they were just worried about being punished. Yeah. And so a way of explaining that is that, well, what is guilt and where does it come from, right? Yeah. And to understand you've done something wrong and feel bad for it, you have to know what right and wrong is <laughs> to begin with. Exactly. And we just assume it. It's one of those examples where we don't realise how smart we are. A lot of people think, oh, there's so many stupid people out there, <laughs> right? Like that's something you hear people say all the time, right? Look in the mirror, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, actually, although there might be like people that are stupid, yeah, we are extremely intelligent compared to other species and we forget all of this base layer intelligence that is just implicit and it's buried beneath all of our other knowledge. Right. Like morality, you know, we don't get that when we're first born, we have to develop that as a child. It, it takes years. Yeah, and and the other thing that I thought was interesting is like we expect our dogs to experience that side of the world in the same way that we do. When we live in a society where we are basically behaving according to consequence, you know, we rarely get rewarded for doing the right thing. Yeah. It's more, as an adult at least, it's more do this and, you know, That's so pay, true. The, pay the consequences if you do it. Dogs don't have that. Of course not. Wouldn't it be great if instead of speeding fines, there were speeding bonuses for when you were going like the correct speed? Like, yeah, exactly right. We live in a society that is punitive and we're used to that type of system. Licence and registration, here's your red frog. Like, well done. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? But obviously dogs don't have that. They don't understand that way. And the thing is, though, because our minds are wired to see the world in that way, we anthropomorphise and see our interactions with them and fit their behaviour into the model of how we think we would behave. Yes. And that's the trap. 
right. that we need to get outside of. Yeah. Yeah. So the mm. first thing that I think is is a huge, a huge issue for a lot of dog owners out there, and that's barking, obviously. I yeah. mean, I, I had a <laughs> our family dog was a Jack Russell cross foxy. One yep. of the great barkers, really, oh, yeah. that breed. <laughs> we gave up at some point. You yeah. know, like my mum and I were just like, oh, that's Lola. Um, yep. and as she got older, she she settled down. But a lot of people have issues with barking dogs. It took me a really long time um, before I Googled it and found out that dogs actually don't get tired of barking, <laughs> which was a terrifying discovery. I'm not sure I've ever seen a dog that's lost its voice from barking too much. Right. Maybe once in all of my career, but <laughs> it's but not they, common. They're never going to like, you know, humans get tired of crying. Humans would get tired yeah, of shouting. That's true. Scientifically, apparently dogs don't get tired of barking. It's true. But something that you bring up in the book is about emotional training. That Whatever it's associating the barking with, you can yes. kind of teach it to be a more of a positive thing. Absolutely right. And it really does depend on the cause of the barking. So right. barking is like talking in a way, yep. far less complicated than the human vocabulary, but it is a form of communication and they can bark for many different reasons. And so if you're going to train a dog not to bark, you've got to know why they're barking first yeah. uh, to understand it because if that bark is essentially the same as a dog being really upset and scared, then you want to calm them down versus if they're barking to get your attention, calming them down is not going to work. I mean, you, we'll probably get into the various different collars that you can put on dogs oh, to, gosh. to stop yep. the barking. And, yep. and when I say that, there is no judgment to anyone who has done that because they're yeah. really good at marketing them they to are. make it seem it's really like, sad. like it's it's fine. I mean, even like the citronella collars, technically they're not, I mean, they're not, I should ask you, are the citronella ones Bad. Maybe we're getting into it right now. <laughs> I just mean like not as painful as say a shot collar. Yeah, they're not as painful, absolutely. But they're still doing the wrong thing. So like mm. what you're saying in in the book, you know, emotional training can be a powerful tool that we can use to help our dog. Once you understand how it works, you can understand why you should give your dog a treat when they bark or growl at strangers from fear. Yes. A little later on you say, by giving your fearful dog a treat every time you see an unfamiliar person, an association will form between the enjoyment of eating, eating food and the presence of unfamiliar people. Absolutely right. So if you've got someone knocking at your door and there's a your dog's going crazy, yep. it's probably because they're associating it with a threat or fear. Very often the case, yeah. Yeah? So, I mean, there's the odd dog that's a little bit excited and, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of reasons of barking. But, yeah, the worst cases, the most difficult cases, and that's why it's called a dedication to difficult dogs yeah. because it's the <laughs> – it's the times that the behaviours are the most difficult to fix right. that they have got the most emotion behind them because yeah. emotional behaviour is the hardest to change because it's so strongly motivated. Mm. By, I mean, fear and anxiety are primitive emotions designed to keep you safe and alive as an, as an animal. And so, yeah, absolutely, if you're going to train them to not bark because they're scared, then just forcing them to not bark is not the way to go and you can train their emotions and you can teach them to not be scared. And it's the same as actually what people go through if, as a human if you go to a, a clinical psychologist and you want, for example, snake or spider desensitization therapy, which you can get. <laughs> Stop it. You can actually? get it. Yep, absolutely. And they put you through a series of, of different... Like scenarios or Scenarios, something? exactly, that get increasingly more and more scary. But at the start you know, happy scenarios with like maybe a little spider in the corner and you're, and you're eating chips and you're happy yeah. and then slowly but surely you can you can relax and calm and, and bring the spider closer and get used to it and that's training your emotions as a person and you can do the same with dogs as well. Do they have one of those for like tax time <laughs> or like just spiders and stuff? Yeah, yeah, Look, fair enough. Yeah, that's a bit of a complex trauma, that one. It's not one-dimensional enough but <laughs> it would be well, great I if don't I know. did. <laughs> no, but- and you make a really great comparison to the idea of a, a baby, like a newborn baby yes. when it's crying. I thought that was such a good comparison. Absolutely. You would never yell at a baby when they're crying. You know no. that the only reason they're crying is because they're unhappy and so the solution is to make them happy. Yes. It should be the same with dogs. Absolutely right. Yeah. So, again, it does depend on why they're barking. Right. But if we're talking about a dog that is really scared of a, of a person or, or another dog and they're barking because they are extremely terrified, yeah. think a child in a doctor's surgery that's coming up to getting their second vaccination. They've had their first one a week ago. And, and it was awful. It was awful. They <laughs> yeah. see the, the doctor and they're screaming and scared. Yeah. If the doctor then gives the child a lollipop to stop them from crying, is that a bad thing? Are we then teaching the child to cry more? 
at such a good point. So many trainers say this. They say you shouldn't give it a treat. You're rewarding the the barking. You're rewarding the behaviour. When they're doing it because they're shit scared. Like, yeah, literally. I, I mean, it's such a it, – but it really is such a hard thing to overcome, like, as an owner, particularly when, like, what is – it's 2023 now. Mm. That's, like, one of the first times I've seen that kind of approach. Like, in the past five years, it's been trickled around, like, you should be – less aggressive and more compassionate when you're training your dog just because you'll see better results. It's not even an ethical thing. Yeah. You know, you talk to parents, grandparents who own dogs when they were kids and it's Mm. like, oh, it's a dog. Like they'll they'll get over it. When like we're starting to see now that you'll actually get the best results if you cater to them and make it a two-way relationship. Absolutely right. It's it's crazy. And the thing is though, the the trap and the reason I call it a poisoned apple in my book is that initially it looks like you get results. You get short-term gain for long-term pain. Right. Using punishment and, and you know, yeah. forcing your animal to do what you want. It does really look like, yeah, they they do respond. But mm. the issue is at what cost? But also what, like, I'm, I'm thinking about the, that part in your book mm. and the idea is, is like, you know, a trainer comes in and, and maybe they're quite aggressive and using a collar, mm. like, it comes back to the anthropomorph. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, so serious. Anthropom- yeah. the, the A word. Yes. <laughs> comes back to the A word. We are misreading what that dog is actually trying to tell us. So while the dog looks like it's behaving and you're getting these quick fix results, mm. what we saw in the book is that the dog's actually shit scared, like yep. you're saying, and it's just too scared to bark anymore because it is terrified. Absolutely right. It's very sad and it's unfortunately if you're not trained and don't understand how to read dog behaviour really, really well, yeah, you miss the signals because naturally we don't read dog behaviour well. We read human behaviour well. Mm. That's what we're designed to do. That's what our brain's designed to do. And so anyone that thinks that just by having lots of experience watching dogs for many, many years they've learned, well, actually they probably learnt bad habits and reinforced them. Right. And so... It's very easy to do. I understand yeah. why it's so attractive as a form of training for people to get into because you feel like you're powerful and really good very quickly if you're using a very forceful approach because you can force a dog to submit to your will through force. It's possible to do. Well, I mean, they're pack animals and that's how there was always going to be an alpha. Mm. No, if at yeah. any point so I am embarrassing myself, you, you give me a big brum brum and you correct it. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that like an alpha, yes, anytime there's a lack of resources, you can get a dominance hierarchy to form for survival purposes to try and get access to those resources because if oh. you don't, it's a, it's a strategy for survival. So it's not a permanent, it wasn't in a, necessarily always. In a healthy, happy always. wolf pack, right. there's no alpha. There's just a family, a family group. That's actually such a fun fact. Yeah. That's so interesting. But if you put dogs into a kenneled environment with, you know, limited access to people and, and, you know, overcrowded and not enough food, there's absolutely going to be a dominance hierarchy for me. But that's a very unnatural, horrible situation. It means their welfare is already compromised. Wow. I I mean, we have all these like vision, not visions, but ideas of the stereotypical wolf pack. There's an alpha, there's this, there's that. I mean, they do it in werewolves as well with all the movies. It's really sad. The guy that actually first coined the term alpha, um, the scientist that was watching wolves and coined that term, a few years later took it back and said, no, I was wrong. Oh, really? Yep. But it had already been run with. Too bad. And it's yeah. too late. Yep. People have run with it. What's the the saying? It doesn't matter what is true. It matters what is believed. Yep. Yeah. And what's a, catchy and what sells, you know? Another part that really stood out to me was um, this line, I'm just going to read it. Personally, I think the idea of having an obedient dog is another example of where society's expectations of dogs are unfair. If you think your dog owes you a debt for looking after them, you're kidding yourself. They aren't smart enough to understand that. No. That is so important. Yeah. And I remember, yep. and when I, you know, I sound a bit like mightier than thou right now, higher than thou rather. I learned all this when I read your book. Like, it's only now after I read it that I'm like really yep. clicking and going, oh, my God, this makes so much sense. Yep. That's such an interesting point, though. It's just strangely not a natural way of thinking at all. No. Like it's another example of where we're just assuming that dogs have got these base layers of knowledge that yeah. actually are quite complicated. Understanding a debt and, you know, give and take yeah. and all of that and because you give me this, I give you that, a trading, you know, bartering. The extent they know is tug of war, yeah. <laughs> 
give and take. <laughs> you can always explain a dog's behavior in terms of very, very, very simple things. Yeah. But we jump to human level knowledge. Naturally. The A word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just do it. Yeah. Moving into like mental health, which is mm. where I find it really fascinating because your PhD is in, is it dog, a canine? Anxiety. I mean, the big question, like what causes a dog to be mentally ill? And I suppose before we cover that, we should cover like what a, what dogs' mental illnesses can be. Yeah. Because they're not always the same as humans. Absolutely not. So when we're talking about mental health illness in dogs, it is a new term that isn't used that often, but it essentially is the dog version of what a human mental health illness is. Right. And if you look at human mental health, there is actually something called the DSM-5, I think it's up to now, which is a textbook that they've got that they use to categorise people's mental health illnesses into categories of what they consider, like a psychosis, for example, like depression. And one of the requirements for something to make it into that DSM-5 is that it has got a significant impact on the quality of life and functioning of that person in day-to-day life. If it's not doing that, they don't consider it a mental health illness. And so in dogs, similarly, there are plenty of syndromes to do with, you know, their emotions that are very uncomfortable for them to live with that really affect their quality of life and which affect their day-to-day life functioning. And so we're talking everything from separation anxiety to, you know, fear aggression to compulsive disorders, all sorts of things. Yeah. And so this is another thing I learned about how it can sometimes be no fault at all of the owner and it might have actually been a product of the environment of which the mother was pregnant with the pups. So, absolutely, you know, you mentioned that they release large amounts of cortisol in their bloodstream, which can affect the brain of the developing fetus and cause them to kind of develop these things later in life, which can form in separation anxiety. There are so many things that absolutely contribute to, before you even get your dog, that yeah. can contribute to why it might have problems. So I often see dog owners that come to see me for really serious behavioural issues in their dogs that they cannot manage at all. And they say to me, look, Dennis, I've had five dogs before, all the same breed. I've done the same thing. They Mm. were all fine. This dog is impossible. I can't manage to get it to stop barking or get it to, you know, behave and settle down. And they haven't done anything wrong. It's genetics. It's what the dog's, yeah, been born with. Yeah, which is kind of a weird pill to swallow that, you know, sometimes you might find out that, well, you kind of never will find out if that was actually the case. It's normally combination. Mm. Yeah, but on to COVID dogs. um, It's such an interesting thing to me because obviously I got, her name is Rat. My dog. Yeah, I got rat. It's a cute name. <laughs> well, I love rats. They're very intelligent animals. They're great animals. It's an affectionate. Everyone always says they're like, oh, what an awful da- name. <laughs> I had rats as kid. As, I think it's I a great name. I had rats as kid. <laughs> <laughs> I had rats as a kid. They were, they were. Oh my god, so they were smart. intelligent. Yeah. There's a reason we test on them. I've always wanted to have one, um, but I've never been able to. Don't, because they only last two years, as That's you know. So sad. Yeah, but I got rat when COVID was kind of, you know few maybe six months in I can't even remember yeah but I was living alone for the first time in my life oh. and I already worked from home yeah and that wasn't necessarily going to be changing yeah because of what I do for a living so you know that was that was normal for me and nothing has changed for rats since COVID I still work from home yeah there are however a lot of COVID dogs who spent a year if not more, getting used to a routine that got completely flipped on its head. Yeah. Can you speak to how important a dog's routine can be that we might not really be picking up on how that's affecting them? Yeah, like I think that's such a good point. If you think about anyone that has got anxious tendencies, any human that, you know, worries about things a lot you like things done a certain way because you know what's going to happen if you do things a this way aspect of control yeah control of your life you got to predict what's happening and because dogs can't speak english and we can't just explain to them that hey my job's changed i've got to do this now yeah. instead of that all they see is that all of a sudden the routines have changed and that they're not at home with you every day during the day and they don't understand why they just mm. have to cope with the change and 
that can be really tough for a lot of dogs, especially if they do have separation problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, th- well, that's another good point because some of these dogs already had it in them. Yeah. But it never got a chance to really manifest because you were around twenty four seven. Yep. And then there are other dogs that could they possibly develop it? Like if a dog didn't have a mm. tendency to get anxious, and then the routine flips on its head. So, like, I mean. It's probably not the word right word, but it was quite violent how <laughs> how quick everyone's yep. lives changed yeah. all of a sudden when we went back into the, the swing of things. Mm. Is there a possibility that dogs could have developed it due to that? That's a really good point. Absolutely possible. Yeah? yeah. Absolutely possible. I think that change is hard if you like things in the same way and a big change like that, you know, it can be frustrating and just upsetting to have to cope with a change that isn't yeah. in your favor. So, you know, oh, dogs love being around you all yeah. the time and this change is not in their favor. They're being around you less. So it's like if they're getting less walks or less food. Yeah. It can just be simply upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you're used to a certain lifestyle, I guess, it can be really hard to go back. I worry about stats in terms of like how many dogs may have possibly been given up uh, after that. Yeah. You know, and we, we have some questions later on. There are a lot to do with separation anxiety, which we'll get to. And it's just, it's hard. It's so hard because what are you going to do as the adult human who has to go to work? Yeah. But you also love your dog probably more than your job. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, the job has to pull rank. Absolutely. Because otherwise you couldn't afford the to dog feed doesn't your get dog. Fed, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It's a, such a tough position and I empathise with people so much because there is almost always a solution yeah. for dog behavioural issues for the most difficult dogs. There's almost always a solution that is just unfeasible because we don't live in a world with unlimited money and resources. <sighs> if <a> only. <laughs> right? If only. And so it's sad. It, it comes back to the fact that environment is such an important thing. Oh, for all species. All species. Yeah. Yep. For dogs just as much as people. So many human psychologists would say, hey, this person, they've got been diagnosed with depression, but really they're just living in really shitty circumstances and it's a normal thing for any human in their situation to be depressed. Exactly. Circumstantial depression and environmental depression. Absolutely. They're two different. So in dogs, circumstantial anxiety, like absolutely. And and that's another thing as well. Like I was going to bring Rat today. I was going to ask permission Uh, to have her here um, because she's, I mean, she's five kilos, 4.9. She's tiny. The reason I didn't, Mm. first of all, I never asked for permission. That's a good point. (laughs) I was going to, just for the record. (laughs) (laughs) Second point is I know Rat and I know that if I hadn't been with her before and sat here for a few hours in this room with her, she'd be a nightmare. And if she's stressed, then I can't. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely when you go, agreed. same same reason why I don't really take her to cafes that much. Yep. I'll take her to some cafes, yep. like as much as I'd love her there and she yeah. comes with me most places. Yep. If she's stressed out, chances are I'm stressed out. Absolutely. And one of the saddest things but most lovable things about dogs is that they'll go with you anywhere. Yeah. They love you to bits. They don't care the if where you're taking them. It's going to stress them out. Because they'll be with you happily anyway. I try to explain that to her when I leave. <laughs> I'm like, you wanted to come. Remember this. Yeah. We, as soon as we get to the cafe, she's like, mm, yep. actually. Don't. Sometimes we got to step in and be the responsible adults. And Well, I'm, oh, my God, that's another. I didn't even have that in my notes here to bring up with you, but that's another thing in your book about, like, dog knows best versus human knows yeah. best and, like, towing that line. And just to, like, briefly explain what I mean by that in your book. So, like, dog knows best would be like just letting your dog eat whatever it wants from the fridge. Yes. Whereas like human knows best is knowing to give the dog, you know, the 85-15 rule, 85% it's That's dog a great food, rule. 15% yep. little bits of tomato and pizza and whatever it is. Exactly. There can be problems yeah. if you always do everything that your dog wants and never stop them from that or try right. to change what they're doing. Another great example is if they're trying to walk out into the road in front of traffic. You know best as the human, right? Yeah, But there are other situations where actually your dog does know best, right? And so it's hard to know when should you step in and control your dog and force them to do what you think is best, like not walk on the road. And when (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. But actually when should you give your dog freedom and let them decide what to do, right? Because we know that freedom is really important for feeling like, Happy and in Empowering. control. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, yeah, it's such a good point. I 
remember when I first had Rat and she was extremely excitable and God bless her, absolutely zero road sense. Yeah. Like not stressed about cars at all, like yep. not at all worried, but like also they're probably just going to stop for me if I run out onto the road, right? So you know, <laughs> bless her for all that. But when she was a puppy, she was so excitable. I was stressed because yeah. our family dog was able to, you know, walk off lead and and really like docile and not yeah. crazy. And so when I rat was going through this phase, I mean, she was a puppy. Yeah. It wasn't even her fault. But for probably for the first 18 months, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm always going to have to have her on a lead. Yep. At some point, this is going to sound really weird, but I gave up. Yep. I didn't give up in terms of like, oh, fuck it. Like, sh- let her do what she wants. Mm. And people ask me now how on earth Rat is so well behaved off leash mm. because now I can just take her as soon as I get to the boundary of wherever we normally walk, I'll yep. let her off and we, you know, we'll walk for 20 minutes. There's people, there's other dogs, there's women with prams there's, yep. and she's just walking alongside me or she's 10 metres ahead sniffing yep. or she's doing this, that, whatever. By the end of the walk, she now knows she stops at like a boundary, an invisible boundary line for me to put the lead on her, which is like, what the fuck? Where did (laughs) that come from? People ask me now, they're like, how did you do that? Like, how did you train her? And I'm like, I didn't. I I just started to give her more trust. And then she started to trust me more. What happened there? It's a good example of if you do something enough, can sort itself out. So if you put a dog into a situation that initially it's new, it's weird, it's strange, if you're just doing that occasionally, and I hear this a lot from people that walk their dogs for 15 minutes, you know, five times a week, Yeah, that's not enough for your dog to get used to the situation. Right. You've got to be going for long walks regularly. And so I'm guessing that you've walked Rat a lot. Is that right? I do like her, yeah. She does tend to get some yeah. attention from me. Yep. So if you're yeah. walking her a lot, taking her out into the world a lot, then it's not as overwhelming and daunting daunting or exciting to the point where she feels like she has to constantly do things because she knows she's going to have time to do everything and so she can learn to go at her own pace. That's so important. Okay, so the other thing is is whenever I'm walking with other people, which Mm. is 10% of the time, Mm. very rarely, they get stressed out about it. And they'll yep. turn around, you know, my, my boyfriend, James, he's only doing it cause he loves her, yeah. but he'll turn around and go, you're right. Like, let's go, let's go. Yep. And I can't help myself, but I go, she'll come like, she'll, yeah. she'll, she'll do it because yep. I, I don't know. I just know she will. Yep. She's never let me down before. Yep. Another thing that I also never did is, um, <laughs> another thing I gave up on rather yep. was recall, yep. which worked the same way. I stopped yelling at her at the park. Yep. And mainly because I didn't want to look like a psychopath at the dog park. But at the same time. That doesn't time, stop a lot of people. No. <laughs> but I gave up because of, you know, various reasons. I was like, whatever. Yeah. And now I don't say a thing to her. It's like she's not even my dog at the park. We're doing yep. our own different things. Yep. Sometimes I turn around, she's not there. And I'm like, right? <laughs> and she pops out from behind a tree. But like yeah. I stopped yelling. So now when I do call her, immediate recall. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I think people, they they teach the recall just to a point where it works once <laughs> and they think, yes, my dog knows recall and then they just overuse it all the time and they call their dog back and the dog comes back and there's nothing in it for them. I was going <laughs> to bring that up. Like that's soon such learn. a good point. They soon learn, yeah, yeah, that there's nothing in it for them. That's a good PSA for people. Treating dogs shouldn't just be while they're being trained. Yes. It's something that should happen as frequently as possible whenever Absolutely. you're getting them to do the command, right? Absolutely. If nothing else, just if you love your dog, do it <laughs> because they're doing yeah. something for you. Like yeah. if I've got a friend and they do me a favour, I'm like, oh, I've got to, I want to do them a good yeah, that's one it. next time. I want to pay them back. That's you it. Know? And how better way to pay your dog back than give them a little scrap of something if they do what you ask? I feel so bad. Like, I mean, I taught my apartment living means I have a potty plant now on my balcony. That So we've trained her now that whenever she does her business on the potty plant, mm. um, sometimes she gets two paws on it. Yep. and wheeze off it, which is yeah. like a circus trick of hers. She still made the effort and she still got her paws on it. Yep. So we still treat her. Yep. If I don't have any treats left, I'm getting in the drawer of the fridge for the tomato. Yep. I'm like chopping it up. <laughs> I feel horrible if I don't have anything for her. Yeah, it's, it is. It gets like that once you really get it and you understand. 
you see it as a relationship with between you and your dog. Yeah. Not like you're a master and they exactly. they should be obeying you because that's their role, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's I feel like that's why a lot of people's recall just falls by the wayside. Because yeah. as you're saying, like it gets to the point where they are running up to you and rat could work out if I had something in my hand from 20 meters away yep. and she'd get that close and go, mm, fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not coming over there. <laughs> one one tip I got for people yes. is for teaching a good recall is have a word that means that you have a treat for your dog. Make sure that you swear like yourself a solemn oath that you are never going to say this word and not give your dog a treat ever <sighs> again for the rest of your life. So they learn that if you Unless say this word, they're about to get hit by a car and you don't happen to have a treat. There are certain exceptions. Yes, that is true. <laughs> but in that situation, I've sort of had that not quite the same, but where I, I had to use the word because my dog, I can't remember what she did, but I remember having to use it when I was on a walk and I didn't have a treat. I ran home with my dog <laughs> saying the word again and fed her her full meal when we got home. Which is, what was so the word, Bicky? Bicky. So you're just running, Bicky, Bicky, yeah, yeah, Bicky. Telling her she's a good girl. Good girl, come on, Bicky. We're going home to have lots of Bickies. Come on. So she learned again, yet again, that Bicky means lots of food. And dad's a psycho. <laughs> Yeah. She loves me for it. Uh, she doesn't care. Everyone else thinks I'm a psycho, but not No, her. I love that. That's so good. <laughs> so this is a topic that I know you're really passionate about and one that maybe you've never heard of as, a, as the listener in terms of with dogs, consent. Now it's 2023 and why shouldn't dogs be included in the consent discussion? Why not indeed? Um, and it it seems for a lot of people when we bring this up, like, well, of course, but wait a sec, I haven't thought of it before, <laughs> like at the I, same yeah. time. I promise you listening ears on everyone. This yep. is something that if you've got a dog, it's going to change your relationship with the dog by the time we finish this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and in a good way, I think, for yeah. you and the dog. Because yeah. talking about consent in dogs, it's the idea that if we're going to do something to a dog that potentially the dog may or may not enjoy, they need to have a decision on whether they consent to that. And that's how they tell you that they're actually enjoying it. Right. And the perfect example is touch. So it's really easy to give human examples for this. If someone's touching you, you may or may not like it, depending on the person, depending on your mood, depending on the environment you're in. What about dogs? (laughs) Don't they all love pets at all times? That's what people assume. So many people just think that, Dogs default love being touched by people. Yeah, we actually know that dogs don't always like to be touched and that often I've seen a lot of clients that have no idea that their own dog sometimes isn't enjoying being touched by them. But as soon as you point it out, it's really hard to forget. So really since obvious. I read your book and you mentioned that there's kind of like almost three categories, I'm par- paraphrasing here, but, you know, one dog might absolutely love scratches. One dog likes scratches in a very specific area. Yeah. And one dog doesn't like scratches at all, but is just putting up with it. Yeah. And isn't sh- you're not really reading their behavior in the way that, you know, that they're enjoying it. Like you make a really good point. If when a dog, when you find a good spot on a dog and they start tapping their foot yep. or they start leaning into it. Squinting their eyes. You're never going to question if they're enjoying it or not. No. You're sitting there. You're they're probably consenting. La- exactly. You're Actively. laughing at them. You're smiling. Yep. You go, oh, is that a good spot? Yeah. But then you think about the times where you have scratched a dog and they've like visibly looked away or they look almost indifferent, like yes, nothing's happening. just ignore you. Yeah. Or moved back. Yeah. You reach out to touch them and they move five steps backwards and then they come close to you. You think, oh, now they want to pat. You reach out to touch them again and they move backwards again. <laughs> Italian greyhounds. <laughs> yeah. You know, back and forwards. I see yeah. people. Yeah. So that's a really interesting thing. And, and since I've finished your book, I've noticed with my dog, who is a lap dog and mm. – very affectionate. Her mm. her love language is kisses. Yeah. Very unconsensual, might I add. This does not go two ways. It does her not. tongue goes up my nose without my <laughs> consent yep. often. Yeah. But I've noticed that I pat her and she's not enjoying it in the way that I thought she was since I read your book. And you know, it sounds like it's gonna, you know, break your heart a little bit. And at first it kind of, you do kind of go, oh shit. Mm. Like you're almost self-conscious about it. You're like, what if I, like I'm such a, a silly billy. But at the end of the day, it, it's like making way for a new understanding and like Absolutely. a new respect. Uh, and they love you more for it, for you respecting their boundaries. So just because they'll put up with you touching them in a way 
doesn't mean they necessarily enjoy it. And so right. I think one other thing about consent and looking for it is you you can do consent checks, kind of like checking in with a person saying, hey, is this okay that I'm doing this? Right. How would you do it with a dog? You stop touching them ah. and see what they do. The ones that want it, they got a way of asking for more and they'll do something. They'll look at you, they'll push into you, they'll paw you, they'll be like, that's it. Why did you stop? And they'll give you a weird look. How weird that, you know, there's a whole world of their own preferences that we've never considered. And you know what happens when a dog, when you repeatedly push past its boundaries and you don't ask for consent, particularly some dogs that really dislike being touched more than others, they get traumatised. And being touched over and over by strangers when they don't want it, the dog learns what to do to stop strangers patting them. What do you think a dog might do? Pick me. Yep. Bite? Yep. Wow. Bark even before that. Yeah, true. That's actually kind of scary to think of that like there are a lot of owners that might not know their dog is on the brinking point. Yeah. Is that possible? Yeah. dogs don't start off this way. No. No, they develop it. And, yes, there's other things like, you know, socialization and all these other things absolutely do you want to talk about socialization we can talk about socialization because that's a really interesting one as well that you bring up the idea that like there's a myth that people think that dogs need to be socialized and that just means throwing them in a park with a <laughs> hundred other dogs <laughs> it's so when true. the point is quality socialization yeah. because that can just as easily do the complete opposite of what you want absolutely. it to do absolutely so dog parks are like imagine if there was a children's playground with kids of all ages playing rugby tackle on half of the playground, no parent supervision, no no people stepping in and stopping <laughs> no, the, them. No, the parents are on the sideline just being like cheering watching on. you cry. Yeah, like, cheering yeah. You on. <laughs> look how cute look, they are. Look, they're socialising, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we know that doesn't work. We know that you need to moderate child socialisation in the playground yeah. and at school and everything. That's why there's yard duty. That's why we do it. And unfortunately, you've got to be a pretty understanding of dogs to be able to do that for dogs in yeah. public and 99% of people can't. And so it is a free-for-all crazy situation where so much can go wrong, so many bad experiences. And so many like misconceptions from owners like, oh, yeah. no, they're just playing. Yeah, oh, that's <laughs> like, the worst one. It's like, bro, my dog is crying. Yeah. <laughs> I've said that to people before. <laughs> yeah. Like I can tell when rats like, because she's small but she yeah. loves to run and so she often gets targeted. Yeah. She also looks like a little sewer rat, doesn't help. Yeah. You know, she'll get chased around for a bit and she'll tolerate it but then at some point she does that little thing where she just turns over her shoulders and goes meh. Oh, and that's when I'm like, yeah. oh, that's it, like game over. Yep. I like. The owners will defend their dogs. I'm like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with your dog. I'm just saying that I'm I'm trying to pull my dog out of this situation. I think those owners, yeah, they need to learn that just because their dog's playing doesn't mean that the other dog is playing or happy. Oh, my God. But, yeah, socialisation is like what is quality socialisation? Because, like, if people maybe think that they have socialized their dog and, mm. and maybe there is maybe something did happen mm. you know we it touches on that in the book mm. one of the dogs does have a bad experience mm. when it's out on a walk like mm. if a, someone's out there listening and they've got a dog that like maybe something did happen during socialization mm. and now they really don't like other dogs mm. and the owner's scratching their head as to why because they threw them in a dog park with a hundred other yep. dogs what did they do wrong? They probably didn't even see what happened. So exactly. they wouldn't have been able to read it. They wouldn't have even realised because it would have been some subtle dog body language that I would have picked up, but 99% yeah. of people wouldn't really see because it's not natural. So, yeah, what do you do though? I mean, you got to try and make amends and repair. Like one really bad childhood experience is exactly what puts people on the couch of psychologists for the rest of their life as adults. Right. Same Therapy. with dogs. You know, if they've had a few really bad experiences, it's really sad. We want to prevent those bad experiences. We want lots of good experiences when they're young. But you're kind of stuck with it and you've got to try and mend that trust that they've got. They've they've lost trust in other dogs. They see them as potential dangers, even if some of them are good. And you've got to try and mend that and as it yeah goes over in the book. You know, there's a lot of things to do. We've touched on a few. I was just about to say I'm mm. not going to go over it right now but it is in the book if you are interested in learning about like also how to balance kind of exposure therapy with a positive experience so that it's not just throwing your dog in the deep end it's all in the book so the other thing is picking up dogs the wrong way i only (laughs) learned this recently from a tiktok but it was right so who cares where it was from Mm -hmm. You are never meant to pick up your dog like it's a child, as in from the front, lifting it from underneath its elbows. This is true. And up into the sky. This is true. 
why is that bad first and foremost? Anatomy. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good one. Different yep. species. Another example of the A word, anthropomorphizing. Yep. Seeing them as as kids, you would pick up a kid that way. Yeah. Um. So their shoulders are actually not don't have a a bone joint holding the shoulder onto the torso. So we have got the clavicle, the bone that actually supports our shoulder yeah. onto our body. Dogs don't have a clavicle. They're, it floats. And so there's only muscles attaching it, muscles and ligaments. And so you're pulling up from these yeah. muscles and ligaments rather than like pulling up by the skeleton. Yeah. And so that's painful. So you've got to support the spine, the, the torso, the body yeah. as you pick up. Particularly if you've got like a sausage dog as well, oh, like a yeah. dash out. Oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely. The biggest tip is, yeah, to support a hand under their bum. So curl their bum under. Okay. Almost like they're sitting on your hand with right. their bottom as you pick them up. And like support their chest and then support kind of the thing. Chest. Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely right. Another really fascinating thing that I found in your book was when you touched on the idea of dogs similar to horses can actually smell fear mm. on people and other dogs. And it's not mm. just fear, it's a range of kind of negative emotions, would you say? It's like they can kind of sense anxiety as well. Yeah, so they've got a whole section in their brain devoted to analysing the smell senses and interpreting what it means, Yeah, which means it's like we're seeing in one dimension with our nose, they're seeing in 3D. They can, even if they don't instinctively know what, what fear is, they can learn that every time they're scared and they're barking, the owner on the other end of the lead starts getting anxious and they emit smell as well. Yeah. And they can smell that and they learn, they make an association that every time something bad's happening, mum smells this way. And then next time mum smells that way, they think, oh, last time something bad happened when she smelt this way. So maybe there's something bad going on now. Yeah, and a couple of things there. Obviously, if you haven't connected the dots, that's why dogs make such great therapy animals because they can sense things usually of, oftentimes before a lot of people realise yeah, it's happening to them. Absolutely. The other thing is no matter how hard you try, sometimes this is why your dog will hate the vet. <laughs> is that right? Because they can smell residual fear in the rooms? True, absolutely. As a vet, just from an experience, and any vet could tell you this, that – some days there'll be a whole string of dogs in a row that are all really, really, really stressed and it's like every single dog you see is just super stressed. Other days they're all calm and I think it's to do with the smell of the building. It's an interesting like point in terms of dogs being a good judge of character. There's that saying that like dogs are a great Absolutely. judge of character. Often nervous people they don't like. And yeah. oh god, and they can smell sickness as well, which is and cancer. Yeah, what the fuck? It's nuts. Have they done like sniffer dogs where they just like go into hospitals? Yeah, I think they've done Wait, it actually? in studies. Yeah, in studies. I'm not sure if it's ever used clinically though. You should be able to like have a dog at a GP and like anyone who walks in, you know, like in the same way that a beagle will go crazy if it smells a bomb. But could you imagine the trepidation you'd get walking into the GP with one of the these dog dogs. Gets really with the, <laughs> and you, it's kind of like just I turn guess, around and run away. <laughs> you know, people going into like, you know, music festivals and stuff with the drug sniffer dogs, like that anxiety they might get some of them of I don't want that dog to come near me. You'd be getting that into the GP. It's prescribed, every time. I swear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now we are coming to a point that I think is going to be super useful. I put yeah. a Instagram story up. I got a lot of people kind of messaging me with a very wide range of, of questions. It is really important to note here that obviously the information we have is super general. So while Dennis, while you can give kind of recommendations or like insight into what you think is going on, it might not be anywhere close to it because you can't obviously maybe once you see the dog in person you could have a better understanding. Yeah, I do consultations for dogs with serious behavioural problems and I – ask questions and observe the dog for about an hour yeah. before I feel confident to give really good advice for that dog. So, you know, we're never going to get that in these questions, but I can still give some great tips. So Right, exactly. Yeah. So firstly, we have one from Gabby. He said, why does my dog wait till I get home to eat the dinner I left out for her? And I think I know this one. Is it because they are unsure of where their next meal is coming from so they wait to make sure that there is one coming? That's a really interesting concept. It's possible, but I also see the same thing clinically that have got separation-related problems. Right. So have you ever lost your appetite before? 
maybe before a big exam, yeah. maybe on a roller coaster, maybe before a date or something if you're just nervous. Yeah. So anxiety inhibits appetite and it's just a personality thing. So some people lose their appetite when they're worried as well. Others don't. Some people eat more when they're worried. How fascinating. And so I often see dogs that have got separation-related anxiety or problems that actually, sadly, they're too worried to eat when they're left alone. Yeah. So Gabby, God, I suppose the answer is your dog might have separation anxiety. It might. That's the main cause that I see. Yep. That's the main reason. Angus said, my friend has a crazy sausage dog who won't stop whining even when he's getting cuddles. Oh, sausage dogs. They're beautiful little little, little things, aren't they? Little psychos, yeah. <laughs> they can be. They can be. You know, whining is it's a, a behaviour that is often done out of anxiety or worry. Right. Generally what it, it tells me about that dog is that it may well enjoy those cuddles and those pats, but at the same time there is – maybe some anxiety in the bond between the owner and the dog. Right. And so although we're enjoying those cuddles, maybe the dog wants more but it doesn't even know what it wants. And I think that this person that asked this question will probably, yeah, agree with that, that I've seen that these are the kind of dogs that often they want to get inside you almost. (laughs) It's like they can't get close enough. It's almost that insatiable need for touch. And they also tend to have problems with, their bond and therefore separation, separation. as well yep. in that situation. When you're getting that inability to get satisfaction from what you enjoy, that's a bit of a telltale sign that there might be something going on there. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. It's very sweet still, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, At least you know the dog's loving it, right? Yeah. Because they don't generally do that unless they really enjoy it. And you'll find that if you stop, the dog, you know, is nuzzling back into yeah. you and trying to get more. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cute. It is cute. Sounds like they've got a, a sweet relationship. Absolutely. Now, Madison, who's got a 12-week-old puppy, congrats, Madison, will not stop biting or chewing hands, feet, anything. How do we stop this? I was taught to make like an ow or like ouchie noise. Right, okay. And the reason this vet told me this was because that's a similar thing. It kind of mimics dogs playing with each other. Yep. They will yelp and give a high-pitched noise and that will Mm. teach other puppies like boundaries. What should they do to help the dog stop? Mm. Because obviously this is a really normal part of a puppy's life, right? It can be, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of tips and things that could work for some dogs. Right. But there's not anything that works for all dogs. Like a one-size-fits-all. No. No. It really depends on why. For example, that yelping noise that we make, that's something that dogs do, but dogs know we're not dogs. If we try to behave like dogs to communicate with dogs. Does it upset them? It doesn't really work. So the things that dogs do, if you as a person try and behave that way, yeah, they look at you like you're crazy because they yeah. know you're not a dog and they've learned to read human body language. And so if you're speaking a, you know, a different body language and all of a sudden you're trying to crack out and speak a bit of dog on the side, right, it doesn't gel with them. They're not used to reading you in that way. And so... Uh. I'm not convinced that every dog understands what that means when you make the yelping noise. Yeah, for sure. Think about squeaky toys. Why don't dogs stop biting squeaky toys if that high-pitched yelping noise is something that is meant to stop them from biting? But, like, this, I think this is just why this kind of education is so fucking important because, like, I think it's three times now. Three times now I've come up with something that kind of makes sense to you but isn't studied. Yeah. But – where I found that information was either told to me by someone yep. who was 100% sure or it was on yeah. a website that claimed to be a veterinary website. Yeah. And, you know, like there's so much confounding information. There is. It's really difficult. And I would just say that if you get to like the top level of, of knowledge in terms of PhDs in animal welfare and animal science and veterinarians that have done their specialty or severe like heavy loads of education – you don't get that variability anymore at that level. Right. We're all on the same page. Yeah. But below that, absolutely. Because there's old wives' tales, <laughs> there's this thought, there's that thought, there's past half-truths, you know, there's yeah. partial truths. Yeah. And so it's a minefield out there. It's really difficult to know if what you're hearing is correct or how correct it is. I would say that the main problem if the dog's biting too much, is that you've got to think about the dogs, especially with puppies, in terms of their needs. Mm -hmm. So what needs have they got to be met? So they've got to be fed, they've got to have access to the toilet, 
They're going to want lots of play, mm. right? They're teething as well, okay, so they might need to chew something. If they get in the habit of biting their owner yep. as they're growing up, that's not a good habit obviously because they're going to mouth and do it more and more as an adult. So you do want to prevent it. But it's not something to tell off. It's something to redirect. And then I think the redirecting one is such redirect a good point. Redirect onto like, a toy. If Try it is play playing with, it. with you, like That's just have the it. tug of war or whatever next to it and replace whatever, you know, if it bites onto your wrist, just put the rope in its mouth instead. Absolutely. Turn it into a game. Try and get it to play with you in another way that's that's more appropriate. And um, and good luck, Madison. Yeah. Have I mean, fun. It's, <laughs> it's a fun time having a puppy, but it's a lot of work. All right. Now this one, I actually don't know who the owner's name is because they messaged me from the account of the dog. So this is Maggie. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Maggie the Bull Terrier. Awesome. We've been struggling with two-year-old Maggie who won't stop barking at neighbours when they're in their yard, particularly the ones on the left. Depending on what they are doing, she will bark at them and not stop until we have to physically remove her from the area. We find she goes absolutely nuts over the sound of a hose and when they're using their hose, this is when we struggle to get her attention the most. We're continuing to teach leave it and come to get her attention and as she's very food driven, this she'll usually leave it but it depends entirely on what the neighbours are doing in their yard. She will bark at hearing their voices or any noises coming from that side. Also tends to stay in the area closest to them even when they're not there. Mm. They added that they've tried bark collars, the spray ones and st- stimulant ones um, mm. as she is very strong-headed and they find it really hard to get her attention, mm-hmm. as well as training with the neighbours for over a year mm. and found it's actually gotten more intense over the past nine months. They asked, yep. you know, what what's going on here? Is it territorial or anxiety or, yeah. you know? All of the above. <laughs> yeah. So again, you know, that's a, a complicated picture they're painting. Yeah. And they've tried all sorts of things. Yeah. And that, you know, they've tried like punishment, so collars that provide a negative association to the barking. Mm-hmm. They've also tried training with treats and calling the dog away. They've tried going over and training with the neighbors, right? So they've tried a whole lot of stuff. But I would certainly say that go back to basics. Anytime yep. you've got a behavior that is really hard to stop there's going to be a strong emotional driver for that. Right. Because emotionally driven behaviours have got the strongest motivation behind them. This dog is, I'm guaranteed, is worried or upset about the noises coming over that fence for whatever reason. Yeah. It actually doesn't matter why if we know that it is like that at the moment. And then that then tells us that it's going to be a long, hard road training the dog to not be scared of something that it's already very scared of because that's emotional training, emotional training. Right, I was going to say that, yeah. It it takes a while but you can do it. But the thing is that if you're doing it in a way where the dog is regularly repeating this behaviour over and over again because every day it's doing it, it's actually never going to improve. You actually have to take it out of that situation permanently and slowly introduce it over time with lots of treats and rewards. Yeah. And if you go too fast, you'll fail. So it's hard. It's hard oh, to train so a dog hard, isn't it? to do this kind of thing. And, yes, it's going to be partly territorial, partly fear-related, and all I could say is that, yeah, have some some empathy for this little little guy. You know, he's worried, worried little yeah. dog, you know. And ideally, I mean, removing from the situation if you can. So you don't always have to train and fix every problem. They did mention they were going to, they were building like a separate fence that would kind of keep it yeah. at least somewhat away. But yeah, the thing is, is the dog out in that environment when there's no one home there? Right. And if so, it's really hard to train a dog to do anything if there's no one around also, in that situation. I hate to, I hate to put ideas into the owner of Maggie, the bull terrier. Yeah. But like, what if when they're not home, the owner has done something really weird. <laughs> like it has made a really over the fence. Yeah, it has been like right? a yeah, like maybe the happened. owner exactly. Maybe that the owner caused this. Yeah, you think so? It could. Yeah, yeah it would make if it the worse. owner like went over the fence Absolutely. with the hose in hand and like went to play with the dog or something, but ended up s- yeah, spraying it in the or, face or maliciously. Or maliciously, um, I've heard of it happening. Yeah, so the dog's barking because they're scared of the neighbor. The neighbor reaches over the fence and sprays the dog to stop it barking. The dog then ah. learns. I was right all along. I knew this neighbor was bad. They've sprayed me. I'm not saying that. No, 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 we're not saying this. that's happened. I'm just curious that but maybe something's going on. It's in the realm on. of possibility, yeah. absolutely. Particularly if like what I found really fascinating is that they're really like it's one side. Like they yeah. bark at both neighbours but particularly one side and, yep. and Maggie will wait at that part of the fence. So the waiting part is an example of where sometimes 
it's we know better than the dog. Right. And it's best not to let the dog do what they want to do. So it looks like she's enjoying hanging out in that part of the fence. People think, you know, the dog's enjoying the view. They like being there and looking out. When she's When just... really she's setting herself up to get upset. Yeah, well, good luck. Good yep. luck. Digby said, how do I get a dog to not be so obsessed with food? <laughs> they oh, all come dear. differently, don't they? Owning a Labrador, I know exactly <laughs> what that's all about. It's not possible to change that no. at all. All you can do is work with it and use it to your advantage. You yep. know, it means that training is going to be more possible to do with food and, and rewards and, and yep. stuff like that. There's a lot of dogs that don't have an off switch for their appetite. They can't ever feel full. And so if they're always going to be hungry, no matter how much you feed Human them. Human knows best. You Stop. may as well feed them the right amount. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. It really is. Yeah. Uh, this is actually from my mother. Oh. They have a uh, Kelpie. Her name is Sunny. Oh. Um, new member of the family. I think she's close to two now. Whenever they go to brush her, as soon as they get near the base of the tail or anywhere around Sunny's bottom, mm. she freaks out, like tail oh. between her legs, ears back. They feel bad because Sunny looks terrified whenever – they go near that area and usually it's only for care reasons. Oh, dear. What um, breed is? Kelpie. Kel Kelpie. Wow. Okay, so brushing around the bottom in a Kelpie. Okay, so why do you need to brush a Kelpie around the bottom? I don't. Great question. I don't normally see Kelpies being brushed much, but I would say that in general maybe Sunny is uncomfortable with, with being touched in that area at all. Maybe it's not just the brush. Maybe, do they have like short hair? Yep. Yeah. Maybe it's any touch in that bottom area and that can absolutely happen for a range of reasons. It could be painful. Yeah. So sometimes they've got hip pain and being touched there, it puts pressure on the hips and it's mild enough that you wouldn't notice a limp and that the vet hasn't picked it up, but that from touch you can pick it up. Mm. Um, interesting story about a case where I've diagnosed hip pain and it turned it out terrible. I'll tell you that one next, I think. But um, with Sunny, another thing that could be is anal glands. So any yes. dog can get their bottom. They've got glands in their bottom that yep. fill up. A lot of people haven't even heard of them and they can get very uncomfortable and then touching the area can be uncomfortable. It's a possibility. It's usually listed as an extra at your groomer. Yep. Tell me the hip story. Oh, yeah. So a really sad example of me doing my job too well. <laughs> How dare you? Really sad. So I had this puppy. It was maybe six months old, one of my yeah. clients, and had a range of issues in, including aggression and, and separation problems. And so I was seeing it for, you know, barking other dogs on walks and all that kind of stuff. And I was talking to the owner about it, everything and just lock, looking at the dog and observing it. And just the way it was moving and the fact that the owner said, hey, this dog doesn't jump up onto the couch next to me. The couch wasn't that high. Right. She didn't think anything of it. And this dog loved pats from its owners. So I knew instantly that there is 0% chance that the dog would just not learn to, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's a behavioral thing. Like it just yeah. would never happen. And so I'm like, this dog's got a problem. There's a reason for it. It's probably got hip pain. And so I sent them back to their vet. You know, the owner was on insurance. I'm like, great, we know we can get this covered. Yeah. Sent them back to the vet. The vet did x-rays. Sure enough, hip dysplasia in this little smaller breed dog. You wouldn't have expected it at all. So Aww. sad. And what made it a million times worse and made me feel so bad is this particular insurance company had a six-month waiting period on hip problems for dogs. If I had not diagnosed that hip problem, it would have been diagnosed in later in life and it would have been covered and she couldn't <gasps> afford to fix it. Oh, no. And so because it was so diagnosed. So she couldn't just wait six months to do the, it? The vets had done the x-rays. And so now this dog's hips are not covered because I diagnosed early. And it's expensive. Oh, also get fucking pet insurance. If you don't get have pet insurance, get pet insurance. Try and get one that covers. X-rays are so expensive and you never know when you're going to need pet insurance for $30 a month for some, like it can get really cheap. It can. You know, you never know when you need it until you mm, do. It's true. Absolutely true. And I think veterinary care costs a lot because human care costs even more. We just don't see the costs because it's in covered this country, by the government in this country. Beautifully. So yeah. what you tend to notice is that there is often less of an uproar about veterinary bills in countries where medical bills are not subsidised because yeah, exactly. they see that it's similar Whereas priced. Whereas we're not used to, like if you actually saw the cost of what your, you know, broken arm does yep. cost after x-rays and pain yep. relief and surgery yep. and the cast and the yep. doctor's time, yep. you'd probably fall over. But yep. from Jamie... Goldie Altoikavoodle, who mm. I I believe is is just a year and a bit old. They got a Goldie in August of last year. Yep. 
has never really had an issue with separation anxiety before. But since yep. we moved into a new apartment, the uh, neighbors have told us that she will cry at the door constantly if she's left at home. I've noticed she started barking more since we have moved. She will bark if she hears something in the stairwell, etc. Then a couple of days after Jamie sent me this question, she sent me a photo of Goldie's recent handiwork when she was left at home, which was an artistic display of ripping up the carpet in her rental. Oh, dear. Can you shed some light on what might be happening here? Look, it definitely does sound like a separation-related anxiety, yeah. distress problem. You know, people wonder why they don't have these problems and they do all of a sudden. Yep. Dogs develop mental health problems through up until the age of adolescence and adulthood, but yeah. not generally past. So what that means is that social maturity in dogs is two and a half years old. Up until that point, we see the development of these problems emerge. And it's just like with people, most children aren't born with depression or schizophrenia at the age of three. No. They're diagnosed in their teens. Sure. Right? Same with dogs. This dog's in its teens. It was probably always going to develop an issue. It's a developmental problem. And so it's just appeared. It's not your fault, Jamie. Yeah, it's sad. All right. Tom asked, why does my pug do 9 million 360 no-scopes when I'm giving her dinner? (laughs) Mine too. Just like the the spins. (laughs) Is she just excited? Oh, I love it. It's an example of a displacement behavior, I guess. So what that is, it's where you have got a lot of emotion and you have to act on that emotion in some way. <laughs> and it, with anxious people, it can be like fiddling. With excitement, it can be zoomies. Like yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. you got to do something. You can't do nothing. This doesn't but sound this like it's is a not bad a problem. Thing. Yeah, I was going to say. This is zoomies. This is excitement. This sounds like a happy, this yeah, is good. happy time of the day. As long as we're not knocking over too much stuff. All right, well. Dennis, thank you so much. Again, I have to say, well, first of all, what like fun conversation that was honestly so enlightening yeah. for me and I'm sure people listening, but your book, um, A Dedication to Difficult Dogs, where can people buy that? Uh, it's easiest through Amazon, yep. but you can search for it online. You can go to my website and look at the Difficult Dogs page and it's got the links there on where to get it. Yeah, basically grab a copy. It's only in paperback for now. Yep. We'll be looking at doing maybe an audio book next year any way you can get your hands on it. Yeah, Mm. and obviously all of that will be linked below in the description of the video, all the show notes if you're listening on audio. Where can people, what are you doing now? Like what are you up to right now? I understand you're a kind of a private behaviour specialist. So basically I do, yeah, I do behaviour consulting as a vet. Yep. uh, Privately in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Right, so if Um, people wanted to. I don't do Zoom or anything like that. I'm quite booked out. Yeah. Um, but certainly if people do make contact through my website, I may be able to help them for yep. sure um, or recommend somewhere local. I am on Twitter as well and I try to post interesting comments on dog behaviour videos. You do. Go out there yeah. and help edu- educate since I people. Fo- yeah, since I followed you, I've seen a couple of different times where I've yep. seen you post on like a viral video yeah. actually giving insight to what's actually going yeah, on. Yeah, because everyone just thinks, ah, oh, funny, <laughs> but yeah. no more than that, whereas I turn it into a learning opportunity. Yeah, which is great. Where you can actually learn some interesting stuff from it, which um, most people love. Some people don't like, but that's their problem. I couldn't have said it better myself. Is there anything that you kind of want to leave people with, like as your message to them with their dogs? Yeah, look, I'd say the message is that you don't know what you don't know. It's very normal for people to feel like they already know it all with dog behavior. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's still heaps I don't know and I've been studying it my whole life. Yeah. And generally what happens is the less you know about something, the more you feel like you got it all under control and you're not dumb for not knowing it and you can learn so much more. You can get more appreciation out of your dog if you understand them better and feel less frustration over the difficulties that they have, if they have any at all. Yeah, I can't recommend the book enough. Buy yourself a copy if you have a dog, if you want a dog, if you are a dog, all of the above. (laughs) Um, It seriously changed the way that I see every dog from now on and like how to read them. And I gather that that's what your kind of aim was with the book. Absolutely. You did it right. Thank you. (laughs) Fuck yeah. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and uh, I will see you next week.